This podcast is brought to you by Alliance Motor Auctions. Has your car shit itself? Then you've got to go with Alliance. It's the easiest way to buy a quality car at a very competitive price. Located in Moorbank, New South Wales. Call 02-9822-7200 or visit www.allianceauctions.com.au South Coast Window Furnishings. Have your window furnishings shit themselves? Then you've got to get in touch with SCWF. They service the south coast of New South Wales from Wollongong to Bermagui. Give Jamie a call for a free quote on 0408 812 007 or like them on Facebook at South Coast Window Furnishings. Elite Sports Physiotherapy. Has your back or another part of your body shit itself? Then look no further than ESP. Established in 2006, Elite Sports Physiotherapy provides physiotherapy and massage services to the people of Melbourne. Located on the mezzanine level, 13-15-1 Freshwater Place in Southbank, Melbourne. Give them a call on 03-8640-0328 or visit elitesportsphysio.com.au today. Also, special thanks to verse.com.au for putting the finishing touches on this podcast. Cheers. G'day. My guest this episode is Perth-based plastic and reconstructive surgeon, Dr. Tony Connell. Tony is one of Australia's leading surgeons specialising in reconstructive breast surgery. I think he's a pretty interesting person, and I think you will too. This is Taking It Easy with Daniel Connell. Dr. Tony Connell, thanks very much for taking it easy with me. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Dan. Thanks for inviting me to uh, come and speak to you. No worries at all. Now, I will say straight off the top that, uh, yes, we have the same surname. We are uh, cousins. That's how I know you and have come to know you over the years. Uh, Our fathers are brothers. um, Correct. But in saying that, I... I've only got to know you really well, I, I would think, in the, in the last few years, sort of since I've done stand-up comedy. I've travelled to Perth a lot more, uh, where you live, and I've got to know you, because when I was younger, you were a lot older than me. Um, Not that much older. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would, you know, we would have family events over in Sydney or something. I grew up in New South Wales, you grew up in Perth, and we would see each other, but, you know, you didn't have much in common when I was, you know, a little boy, and you were... Sort of uh, drinking and, uh, you know, a man. Enjoying uh, my life and you were just a skinny kid. That's right. Cricket. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now I have come to learn over the last few years. I always knew you were a plastic surgeon. Um, I always knew uh, you you did that for a living. Uh, but I didn't ever realise to what extent and just how popular you were in the plastic surgery uh, world and around Australia and, and the world even. Uh but mainly in Perth, where you call home and have called home for your whole life. Um, what was life like growing up in Perth uh, in the seventies and eighties? Oh, I think it was um, it was a pretty it was a great experience. I had four brothers, and um, uh, we're all very sporty, and uh, we only had our immediate family here, so it was um, uh, it was a busy life. Perth is just such an incredible climate. You uh, can go to the beach, play sport all summer. Um, you know, that was back in the days of Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh <laughs> playing for the WA team and following the football. It was a, it was a great experience. Did you get to the Wacker much back then? 
I was there the day that Doug Waters hit a six off the last ball. Is that right? At the Wacker. I told Dennis Silly that a couple of years ago when I met him for the first time. Yeah, I went, I went, I went to the Wacker a fair bit, played a bit of cricket myself and yep. um, hockey, a bit of football and yep. um, a bit of golf with the old man. Yes. And uh, yeah, it was a great, it was a great, great life. Excellent. So you, so you finished school, yep. uh, you go to university, you didn't study, uh, you didn't study any sort of um, medical no, uh, not, not from did the you? get-go. I was a bit undecided when I um, uh, when I left school. So I went and did a, a Bachelor of Science. Yeah. Uh, did a couple of phys ed degrees. I did some phys ed units, um, some human biology units, physiology, just kind of basis, basic biological science. Ended up doing a double major in uh, physical education and in anatomy and human biology. And while I was doing anatomy and human biology, I uh, met a few more senior uh, guys who was studying to be surgeons and that's when I kind of realised that's what I wanted to do, was to become a surgeon. So I went back to medical school to yep. do surgery. I was totally focused at that time once I knew what it was that that's what I was going to be. Yeah. And, and, and plastic surgery, was that? Yeah, that's a kind of a strange thing. I went to medical school knowing that I wanted to do surgery and um, then when you qualify as a doctor, you do rotations through all the different surgical specialties I uh, kind of thought neurosurgery for a while, maybe yep. cardiothoracic surgery. And then one day I, I had to relieve a guy who was sitting his plastic surgery exam and um, we did what's called a free float. We transplanted some tissue from one part of the body to the other and attached the vessels and brought it back to life. And then that was wow. the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And I realised yep. that's reconstructive microsurgery was what I wanted to do. So I went, became totally committed to doing plastic yep. surgery. And how long did you have to study for? Um, um, did my kind of basic surgical training in 91 and 92 and then I got onto the plastic surgery training program which in Australia um, runs for three years and then you do a, a final exam and then it's it was not compulsory but encouraged to go and work overseas and become uh, uh, to, to develop subspecialist training. Yeah. Plastic surgery's got eight subspecialties and, and so I went and did reconstructive microsurgery and hand surgery for one uh, for 1997 and then 1998 I went and worked in the Cleveland Clinic in Fort Lauderdale in Florida and did um, again some more microsurgery and I did a lot of breast surgery because the commonest microsurgery procedure that as a plastic surgeon would do is to reconstruct the breast after yep. a mastectomy. Right. So the two kind of went uh, together and then from that time on I've progressively worked towards just doing uh, all forms of reconstructive and aesthetic breast surgery. Right. So, so twenty years ago, say, uh, did you did you th- did you know that plastic surgery, like today, plastic surgery, yeah, you know, in all forms, is um, well, mainly cosmetic is the one that comes to my mind, and it's you know it seems like twenty years ago it was kind of frowned upon, and people you know it was a bit laughable if you had Botox, but Absolutely. today it is very, very common. Like it's it's. It seems like I, I've, you see people every day that you can tell have had a bit of work done, especially where I live in Melbourne. Did you did you know back that like twenty twenty five years ago that possibly it could just boom eventually? Or oh, I, I think it was an inevitability. It's uh, I mean, I, I a bit tongue in cheek. I do call it the disease of the rich. Right. Um, a cosmetic <laughs> surgery or aesthetic surgery is is surgery to uh, change your form yep. for the better. Mm. to rejuvenate or correct an ageing process that naturally occurs. And, um, uh, you know, back in, I'm sure, 20 years ago, I mean, I was 
in in the United States when Michael Jackson was getting his nose done right. um, and having his chemical peels, and it was completely. I mean, I went to conferences and they used to talk about it a lot. It was it was kind of at that stage it was things that only the extremely wealthy would have done, or mm. movie stars, for example, to yeah. try and perpetuate their career. But since that time, it has become more and more mainstream, mm. and. Um, uh, you know, the social media, you know, the Kardashians, mm. the Hiltons, yeah. the movie stars, it has become very mainstream. And, it, you know, it does concern me a bit because it still is surgery. It still does have complications. A yeah. lot of people think that having surgery is like having a haircut. It's not. Mm. It's, you know, it's irreversible. Um, and a lot of thought has to be given to it before you you undertake that. You know, what are you trying to... Mm. Uh, you, the way I think about it is... If you want to have any form of uh, plastic surgery, and plastic is the French word to mould, that's where the name came from. Mm -hmm. So if there's a part of your form that you want to have surgery to correct its appearance, you've got to think long and hard. Um, do I? Will it resolve the issue that I have with that part of my right. body? Yeah, it's re it's it's resolution, and I call yeah. the. I tell my patients who have reconstructive breast surgery following mastectomies, it's. It's resolving the issue of not having a breast. Yeah, and you know we don't we don't do it to fill the bra, for example. We can do that with an external prosthesis, but we do it because it regains their form and makes them regain their self esteem. Yeah, so there's a lot of psychology in in the form of surgery that I do. Yeah, and, and specialising in that now in in breasts, uh, and you're working a lot with uh, women who have, uh, are recovering fr from bre yeah, breast yeah, cancer. Had, ladies who've had mastectomies, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd imagine, although it would be a very you know, rewarding job to work one-on-one -on -one with someone in that situa situation, yeah. I'd imagine it would be you know, a, a pretty a, a draining process when you're seeing so many people go through such a tough time. Is it hard to stay focused and, and not get too involved in their life and and their situation yeah i think um i think it's it, it's it is uh tiring mm -hmm. um i have uh, i tell the trainees that one thing that does happen to anyone in a caring profession is you get what's called care exhaustion yeah nurses parents uh doctors we all get you do just get tired because you've only got a finite amount of energy that you can devote to a particular area you know sometimes your kids you get tired of your kids asking you questions all the time. Mm. You know that's just normality, um, but it is very rewarding. And and I'm fortunately on the reconstructive side of yeah. the ladies who have mastectomies. I'm not involved in the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy, or the mastectomy process. But I, we work as a team, and I'm kind of on the optimistic side of rebuilding yeah. what they what's happened to them, and it's a great privilege. Right, and and we uh, obviously you. You went to Miami in the late 90s. You came back. You worked in Royal Perth Hospital. Yeah, I worked in the public system, the public hospital system for a while and, and in private practice. And yeah. now I just work in private practice. Yeah, you've got your own private practice and yes. you've been specialising in the breasts yes. uh, uh, surgery for how long now? Uh, about 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Um, and then, then uh, reconstruction is about a third of my work. Yeah. Uh, a third of my work is actually revising implants that have been put in by other surgeons. So this is, we're talking uh, Thailand botched Thailand, jobs, um, is this? Uh, you know, yeah, uh, done by other surgeons. Occasionally yeah. I have to revise my own uh, breast augmentation right. procedures. Yeah. So 
um, you know, re, uh, you know, revisionary breast surgery is becoming a very big part of my work because there's a lot of ladies out there having, um, you know, breast implant surgery that where things don't go the way that that they expected, right? And they can either live the way that they are with an unacceptable result, or they choose to have a revision. So I do a lot of revisionary surgery. Um, then I do my own form, my own breast augmentation practice, breast reductions, and I. I also do congenital breast surgery. It's a it's a subsection of breast surgery where young ladies, you know, uh, between the age of say 15 and 20, are born with significant asymmetry or deformity to the right. breast, which significantly affects their social life and their self esteem. And they they uh, they come and see me, and um, you know, there are, there are a number of things we can do to improve their form yep. so that they can live a um, a more complete life. Right. Yeah, I've, I've read uh, uh, before I came to chat to you. I read a lot of online uh, reviews of yourself, and mm-hmm. it's just so many uh, women, uh, predominantly in Perth, and that come from you know a long way away to see you, and they're just so it's it's life changing for them. It's um, uh, whether it be a, a former you know, a breast cancer sufferer, uh, someone with you know a, a botch job from Thailand, they all seem to. Um, just be absolutely wrapped with your work. Do you do you uh, get do you read the reviews for starters, or do you? No, do you, I never. No? I never do. No, I never do. I my patients do often say to me, "You should see what's written on the internet," and I and I've got all these kind of standardised comments. Um, I say that well, the internet is the world's most unfiltered source of information, <laughs> and um, I tell them that all the good things that are written by me. Uh, that are on the internet or could possibly be written by me, <laughs> and they they kind of get the message. I think. No, I, I don't. Um, I don't see that as an avenue to um, um, make a difference to me. I think the fact that they write stuff like that on the internet. I mean, I'm sure there's comments there if you look hard enough where women were unhappy with the work that I. Well, I looked do. pretty long and hard. I couldn't find. <laughs> Um, too many. I've I've just tried to really just do the best I possibly yeah. can for my patients, but also the harder I try to be to to give them the best result, then they get the best result that I can possibly that that could possibly be achieved in my with my experience. Yeah. And, and I just you know I do a lot of research and I review my work and I I um. Uh, you know, I analyse my results, and I talk to colleagues, and I, I'm in, um, I'm in contact with the, you know, the four or five other guys in the country who just do breast surgery. We, yep. we talk a lot at conferences, and we talk to each other on the phone. We kind of collaborate because we're all like-minded kind of guys. With, and you know, there are a lot of controversial things that are happening at the moment with breast implants. This rare lymphoma that we've discovered the implant-specific risk, which is in the media at the moment. And you know advances in reconstructive surgery. It's it's very exciting, and and every single piece of research, every single piece of analysis that we do will only make the patients get better results. Yeah. In your time, has have you seen just an, an amazing difference in uh, like the 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 types of implants you're using, and is everything just moving rapidly, or is it every every year is we just get advances in. In technology and knowledge and research, um, I've been involved in the air expander research, which you might have read about. Um, this this um, CO2 gas-powered 
device that was invented in Palo Alto in California, which uh, the inventor and a few other guys from the company came down and asked me about nine years ago if I'd be interested in putting some of these devices in. And, and you, were, you were the first in the world to, to trial that? Yeah, I, I did. I did the first three trials in the world and put the first 100 devices in about uh, 70 of my patients who were having who'd had mastectomies and um it was it's it changed their whole expansion experience yeah and um yeah well, i just feel very grateful that that they came and asked me and um and i my patients agreed to do it you know this was the mm. you know the first seven and first 10 devices that i put in the f- seven of my patients because some of them are bilateral cases I just really admire those ladies to taking that leap of faith. Yes. So this is when uh, a lady has had her breast removed after yes. as a result of breast cancer, and yep. the air expander will they they can on their own they can pump it yes. to a size that they are happy with. Yep, That's or based on their dimensions. Yep. and they don't have to visit me in the office, and they do it at their own. They do it at home. It's amazing. At their own level of comfort. I've got a lady in Carrara at the moment. I've got a lady in Port Hedland. Lady in uh, Melbourne, Lady in Esperance, yep. and they expand themselves at home. They they're expanding the submuscular pocket, and um, they create the space to put the permanent implant in. Wow! And it used to be a terrible um, thing where they used to come to the office and we used to inject it once a week with saline using a needle through the skin. And this is only within the last in nine, the last nine years. Right. This technology's yeah. come along, and it was it was developed by a, um, a plastic surgeon Dan Jacobs in um, California. And um, he flew to Perth and asked me to put the first 10 in the world in. And then the FDA and the TGA um, said, you know, we need some more numbers. And then they asked me to do the next 33 patients who ended up having 60 devices. And then, you know, there were lots of other parameters that needed to be assessed, radiotherapy, uh, whether they could fly with the device in because the gas expansion right, the plane yeah. takes off and... So much more. Yeah, so I did put the first 100 in the world and then they did a big trial in the States and now probably about 20 surgeons in Australia are allowed to use it and probably a couple of hundred in the United States. So it's it's technology that's going to change... Um, breast reconstruction forever and, and some, to be there at the beginning yeah it's quite amazing was, isn't it just, you know in, in Perth which yeah. is the furthest most point in the western world is it's just I, I don't know how the, the circumstances resulted in it happening but it has been a great experience and it's been yeah. great for my wife and I because I've got to travel yeah all throughout the world a number of you know every a couple of times a year I, I fly to a different country to give lectures on Mm. when they're releasing the device or there's a new trial results and whatever. So it's been a great experience for well, for my wife and I to do it. It's incredible. Amazing. Um, so you, you have a, a private practice now. Obviously, yes. we discussed yeah. that. Um, I was talking to you off uh, earlier before we started the podcast just about uh, the, sh- the amounts of people you see. I'm, I'm amazed because in this day and age, social media, websites uh, for a business are almost – uh, you, know, you a must, you know, and you don't have, you don't have a website. You're not your uh, anti-social media. <laughs> you have pure, purely uh, word of mouth is how you work. You have a yellow page. I've noticed you on the yellow pages on the internet. That's the only way I could contact you. Um, yeah, you make me sound like some sort of internet dinosaur. <laughs> but yeah. you, but how, in the saying all that, you see eight hundred patients a year. Is that? Yeah, I see 800 new patients a year. Right. And um, 
I do end up doing about 800 operations a year. Some of them, wow. not all the patients I see proceed with the with my recommendation, yeah. um, which is fine with me. I'm, I'm very happy that they don't proceed if they're not totally committed. Um, some of my reconstruction patients have two or three operations going through the stages. So, um, yeah, and I just do see a lot of, a lot of ladies just for one thing right. to try and fix their breast aesthetics whether they've had a mastectomy or a bad operation or they want to be bigger or smaller yeah and um yeah it's kind of a it's it's strange to just only work on one part of the body and i know other some of my colleagues are kind of happy to work you know one day they're they're taking a big skin cancer off someone's head and then they're doing a rhinoplasty and then they're doing some liposuction yeah um i'm very happy just to concentrate on one area yeah and and you will see uh, forty five to sixty people uh, in a day. You'll you'll meet, and yeah, then you'll operate Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. So I we'll operate three days a week and see patients yeah. two days a week. Yeah. Um. Uh. So you know, I the, the the patients that I see in my office, some of them are new patients looking um, for an opinion about, you know, where they've got, you know, where the implants need to be revised, or they they've had a mastectomy, um, or they. They want an augmentation or a reduction, and um, that takes about you know thirty to forty minutes. And then the patients that I've operated on the week or two beforehand, I, I see them in the dressing room, and then some patients just come and see me for five or ten minutes just to review where they're at, yeah. um, organize their imaging, you know their follow-up imaging. Um, you know, they, it might be a multi-stage procedure where they will have their imp- expander out, their implant in. They might need a nipple reconstruction, then have some fat grafting. So they may have three or four procedures, yeah, okay. and it's kind of a stage process. So, yep. yeah, I see about between forty and sixty patients on a Friday and a Monday if, yep. if things are busy. And um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of um, a lot of concentrating. But the, the ladies are great. They they well, in in overall they are, you know they they can have their demanding moments and. Um, I think I just tell them that we're all just trying to do the best we can for them, and and you know a lot of them are having chemo and radiotherapy, and I, you know they they need a lot of support. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, we we uh, touched on it before. The what what percentage of your patients are coming from? You hear about it. You hear it. You might see it on a current affair, or you see it in a news dot com article. Um, coming from uh, like Thailand, for example, with botched. Jobs. We obviously the lure is the the cheapness of it. Uh, you see that for all things. You know, people get their teeth done. Yeah, they in should. Thailand, it's uh, even down to tattoos are cheaper. You know, <laughs> how you know how how many yeah how many patients are you seeing? Uh, maybe a year from from botched Thailand boob jobs, for hundreds. example. Is that right? Hundreds. hundreds and hundreds of them. Not more than I could ever. I mean. If someone calls up my office tomorrow and says, I've just been to Thailand, I've got a terrible result, um, they would have to wait four or five months to see me. Right. And these are, I, I feel terrible for them because they, they've probably borrowed money from their parents mm-hmm. or they've sold their car. They've gone up to Thailand thinking that it's like, it's not real surgery. I mean, they won't drink the water up there, but they'll have an operation up mm. there. And you know these are these are young Australian ladies who think that that form of surgery is not not as um, complicated, not yeah. as dangerous potentially as 
having an appendix operation or a hernia fixed mm. or a broken leg. And I think I think for some reason the fact that it's cosmetic surgery, they don't think it's real surgery. Right, yeah. And it, it, it's yeah. real surgery. You're still being you know, yeah. you can get an infection and it can mutilate your breast yeah. if you have a bad implant in, for example, an infected implant give you a very bad result, which is very difficult to rectify. And these are young women. And then if they need a revision, they never go back to Thailand for a revision. Mm. And I, th- I would estimate that the revision rate of um, young ladies who've been to Thailand, for example, is probably four or five times higher than it would be in Australia when done by undertaken by a... Um, you know, a specialised plastic surgeon. But, you know, I hear, and I don't really know what I charge, but I hear that what we charge on average is about twice as much as they Right, so what that's what has got to be my next question. And, what? That is the, and I call them price-sensitive patients. They, yeah. they, they want, um, you know, price is important to them. Mm. If I was having an operation, I think, it, uh, price would not be one of, one of the parameters by which I would decide. Not when there's... Yeah, scalpels and and yeah, uh, infection in yeah. a foreign country. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I just, it wouldn't be one of the parameters that I judge. I, I judge it on, um, you know, cleanliness and the skill of the surgeon. Yeah, and who's going to look after me? And, um, you know, is the anaesthetist know what he's doing? And am I going to wake up? And mm. all those sorts of things. And I've had surgery. I know what it, I know what it's like to be a patient. It's a, it's not like going to a day spa and getting your hair and your nails done. It's. Yeah. It's an operation that you you need it to go well, and it's on your form, yeah. and it's always on a part of your form that the world is going to see, and that's why you're having the surgery done. Mm. If it was on your buttock fold, for example, that that issue, you know, if you had a mole there or something like that, and no one ever saw it, you would never have anything done to it. Mm, that's right. But when it's on your chest or it's on your face, um, or you want some liposuction to your tummy, for example. It has to go well because it's it's the part of your form that you reveal to the world. Mm. And is there no uh, for uh, ladies that get them done up there? There's there's no uh, insurance or anything. You go up if it's a botch job, you're getting nothing back, right? You, you well, you've got to start from scratch in Australia. Yeah, on occasion I've heard that they they do make a complaint to the Thai surgeons and they. We'll fly them back there for a revision right. on occasion. It's very rare. Yeah. But what I think what happens is when they get a bad result, they lose confidence and then they realize, hey, this this is surgery. I better If I want this fixed, I'm going to have to go to someone and they're going to have to know what they're doing and how to fix it. And, um, you know, private insurance pays a small part of the revision if you're privately insured. But again, if they're not, they have an out-of-pocket expense, mm. and you know that's more expense. And the reason they went to Thailand in the first place was not to spend too much money. And yeah. so all of a sudden, there's a doubling effect of the revision of the cost of the revision. So it's yeah. a, it's a bit of a it, it, they get on this kind of treadmill where all of a sudden they're trying to get the right result. And how much time am I going to have off work? How many stages is it going to take? Is it going to give me the right result? All of those sorts of things. Yeah, it's very concerning. Is is there a? Uh, I know you, you were saying before you sp- you know you speak with the other um, you know the breast surgeons in Australia who predominantly work on breast. Is is there a you know a, a message you're all trying to send to people we, to we, to avoid it completely? Like we do, and and our society, the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, has been 
in the media for five, maybe eight years, just telling people that they should not go and have cosmetic surgery done in other countries or by inexperienced surgeons because, you know, if they get a bad result, it, it's going to have to be fixed. And, for example, I mean, you know, there's a there's a, a business called the Cosmetic Institute that's been operating out of Bondi. They've had some some very significant anaesthetic complications which you know that everyone's seen it on 60 minutes where the young ladies have had to go to the intensive care unit and then unfortunately that that young chinese girl died in sydney um you know from an overdose of intravenous medication while she was having um fat injections done to her breast by yeah an unqualified and that was a terrible was, terrible yeah. thing and that has really been quite a stimulus to people sitting up and saying well i'm not going to go somewhere and and have um, the surgery done if it's not going to give me the right result. You're listening to Taking It Easy with Daniel Connell. I asked you earlier uh, if I could ask you if you've worked on famous personalities in your <laughs> in your. Uh, life, but obviously there's a patient-doctor confidentiality, so you couldn't tell me. But I know that you worked on one of the biggest personalities in the mid-90s, and that was an orangutan that fell from memory. I remember we got the clippings, the newspaper clippings, big news in Bateman's Bay when I was about 12 or 13. <laughs> we got the newspaper clippings that Cousin Tony, the plastic surgeon in Perth, had worked on the orangutan after it fell off a uh, it was swinging fell it was on a perch at the Perth yeah, Zoo tore its underarm from yeah, memory it, it, it got a significant laceration in uh, its axilla in the armpit right so can you can you remember the call you got obviously there must be uh, vets that work within that can do that but obviously there was not anyone available at the time no no well they had they had their local Perth vets apparently had been had assessed the size of this laceration. They'd left it for a couple of weeks, hoping that, you know, nature would take its course and it would start to heal. But What, an animal that swings? <laughs> yes. Ump it would heal. <laughs> yes. And there was an anaesthetist who worked at the hospital, a senior anaesthetist who worked at the hospital who, um, I don't know how, what the circumstances were, but his role was to advise the um, vets at the Perth Zoo because he was an expert in pharmacology on, you know, this type of animal, this type of metabolism, these are the drugs that you should use. And he came into the operating theatre one day and I was the, the senior trainee at this hospital and he said, now, he was an Irish guy, um, and he said, now, Tony, I've got an interesting proposal for you. And um, it was in front of all everyone in the operating theatre. He said, oh, well, I need someone to come and have a look at the wound in the armpit of the orangutan. Um <laughs> And uh, with a view to possibly trying to fix it, and I, I thought he was just pulling my leg. I thought this is, this is ridiculous. And um, sure enough, he was dead serious. So uh, how it worked out is, I said, well, I, I'm not going to make any. I'll come and have a look. Yeah. Right. So I said, but they have to put the thing off to sleep, which they agreed to do. So they put the orangutan off to sleep, and I, you know, assessed the wound and I debrided it. And um, which is what that's uh, where you clean the wound up and remove right. all the dead tissue and okay. make an assessment of the extent of the wound. Yeah. Um, 
And you also make an assessment of, you know, is this going to heal on its own? Yep. Have I got any local tissue I can use? Do I, can, <laughs> do I need a skin graft? Right. Can I just put a dressing on there? Yep. Just to go through the normal um, problem-solving sort of cascade in your mind. And um, I then realised that this thing was that the, uh, the defect, the skin defect, was probably about, uh, you know, 15 by 10 centimetres. Wow. And, and it was a big, big yep. defect because I think, I think the orangutan had... Um, had obviously been attacking it and rubbing it and swinging through the trees and doing all that yeah. sort of stuff, which it was going to continue to do afterwards. So what I did was I decided to um, then said, look, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to take a skin, I'm going to shave its forearm, and I'm going to skin graft, uh, take the skin graft from the forearm, and I'm going to um, graft the axilla. Yep. And then put a dressing on the forearm, and it's going to heal up on its own. So it's basically paper mache, like you were your paper mache. Yeah, over yeah. A, a piece of glad, take a piece of glad, wrap yeah. off the arm, and then yeah. put it in the axilla. Very straightforward. So that's forward. what happened, and, and it was great because the kids, my kids, they really enjoyed going to the zoo to see my first patient <laughs> um, outside the public free hospital entry? system. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you walk in, you get free entry, and go down yeah. to the orangutan cage, <laughs> and um, over the next couple of weeks, you know, it had a dressing which didn't last too long, and. But I think, um, I, you know, we went back and they put it off to sleep again and, you know, quite a bit of the graft had taken and the thing eventually healed. So yeah. I thought it was, uh, you know. Now, after after you came out of the original operation, <laughs> did you have to sit down with the orangutan's family and yeah, talk yeah, to the… counsel it and say, yeah, this is the this plan. This is what's happened. This is yeah. <laughs> next step. It'll take this, apply this every two times a day that's right yeah. that's right well it was, it was i had to get an interpreter because the orangutans were sumatra <laughs> so i needed something they could interpret um indonesian to the orangutans uh. family but um yeah no it was a very unique experience did word spread after that and did you ever get asked to work on any other other animals um, um yeah from time to time i got i got asked advice i didn't um i can't say i ever went back to the zoo and operated again <laughs> but um yeah they do they do seek our advice from time to time right. Because the you know the 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 animals at the zoo are, are are precious to the zoo absolutely, and they do get wounded and you know they, sometimes they get you know they get broken legs and or dislocated jaws and stuff like that. So mm. we do get asked advice from time to time. Right, uh, I've spoken to you about this before. You've uh, worked in Tanzania. Now Tanzania, t- tell us how that came about. It's, this is obviously a. a ch- for charity, you you created this with a friend of yours. Yeah, uh, you travelled up there a number of years in a row. Yeah. Um, so tell us about how that came about and 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 what you did in Tanzania. Well, it's, it's a, I'll try and make it not too long a story. Um, when I was at medical school, uh, I shared a house with a, a, a guy, um, a mate of mine, um, and he was the year ahead of me at medical school, and we got on quite quite well. And um, uh, his sister lived with my best buddy who we used to go surfing with. So Rob, uh, when he when I went into surgical training, Rob uh, was in the army and then he, uh, then he became um, the doctor in the SAS and was, did a um, three or four year stint with the SAS. And then he started working for um, uh, a couple of big gold companies in Tanzania. And when they built a big gold mine, uh, they might have 5,000 workers, but all the extended family live outside the gold mine and it can be as many as sixty or seventy thousand people. And wow! The, and the medical director of the gold mine not only has to look after the five thousand workers, but it has a responsibility, as per you know, um, stated by the the government, to look after the extended family. So he was looking after seventy thousand people around this mine in Kahama, in uh, Tanzania, and um, he knew that um, you know 
the Plastic Surgery Society in Australia had a has a charitable arm called Interplast, right. and they go to all different countries throughout the South Pacific. And he contacted me and said, "Look, you know, we have we've got a lot of kids here with cleft lip and palate. We've got albinos with um, skin cancers. We've got a lot of burnt kids. Would you consider coming over and having a look, making an assessment to see whether one of the charitable societies could actually mount a team?" to come over to Tanzania which would and the gold mines would assist in in the financing of it so I went over there with my eldest son to do an assessment and went over there for a week and it was an incredible experience and just going to a third world country is mm. is, uh, is quite an quite an uh, amazing thing and um, so he took us to the gold mine uh, we looked at all the hospitals in Dar es Salaam the capital um, and um, you know through another couple of visits making an assessment, getting the people from Interplast and Operation Rainbow involved. We finally mounted a mission, uh, a two-week mission, two plastic surgeons, two anaesthetists and six nursing staff. Uh, we went to um, Dar es Salaam and we operated on about 90 to 100 burnt children um, or and did hand surgery and did cleft lip and palate surgery. And, and since that time, that mission has continued on... Um, uh, twice a year for the last 12 years wow. going to that one country yeah. um, all assisted by the the Tanzanian consulate and uh, in Perth and um, also by the gold mines in um, uh, in Tanzania so it's been an amazing thing it placed a dome in uh, Anglo Ashanti gold and Resolute gold of the companies that assisted us so and they they're helping um, helping the people who who live around the mine yeah. and it was quite an amazing so you, thing. So you, you were just like setting up a makeshift uh, hospital? In, in no, we actually used an existing Lutheran hospital right. that had two operating theatres and we took over one of the operating theatres and put two operating tables in the one room, which yep. normally we don't do. But on charitable missions uh, in Tanzania and also in the Philippines when I w- went and did a couple of trips with Operation Rainbow, um, you know, you just get you, you've only got a finite amount of space and a finite amount of staff, and so you do two operating theaters yeah. in the one theater. When, yeah, and yeah, and, and you just do time as much the, work yeah. as you can um, from sun up to sundown to to try and you know fix as many children or adults with cleft lip and palate or burns or hand surgery and stuff like that. So you, you see some amazing things, and and to be able to take your skills to another country and make a huge difference Absolutely. to these kids is a it's an absolute privilege. It's a, it's a credit to the Australian education system that yep. we could go and do that. And, um, yes, yeah, so I went there f- um, once or twice a year for about four or five years and then the, 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 uh, the charity had got its own momentum and other plastic surgeons in the city started to go. And then I went off to um, uh, did a couple of trips to the Philippines with Operation Rainbow, yep. just doing cleft lip and palate. Um, surgery, so I haven't I haven't been for a number, uh, probably four or five years now, uh, because I've been doing so much research on breast reconstruction for this right. uh, for this new device. So that's yep. made me travel a couple of times a year around the world. So you know, it's not a it's not a terrible problem, but mm. there's only a finite amount amount of time you can keep away from your practice and yep. and your family. So um, the the kids in Tanzania that were burnt, what 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 was resulting in them? Having burns in the first yeah, place. It's quite an amazing um, sequence of events. What happens is these kids are out they're in the middle of all of the, the huts that they live in were 
uh, fire, you know, the fire that burnt the water, that boiled the water, and they did their cooking on, and these kids would be running around the fire in the middle of the night oh, okay. and would trip over and fall into the fire. Oh, no. And then, um, because they have no burn service and no dressing and l- totally limited nursing and uh, medical assistance, the kids would basically get dressings until the wound healed. So some of these kids had dressings every day for nine months wow. until it was healed. And there was a few kids who whose arms were actually stuck against their, 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 their chest. So they got burnt in the armpit. And then as it healed, it completely constricted down and uh, attached to their chest wall or they got burnt in the neck and their, their chin actually touched their chest or their mm. elbow got flexed up. So it depends where the burn was. And um, so we did a lot of burn release surgery and skin graft. We took our own battery-powered skin grafting machine wow. um, and uh, just did all this uh, burn surgery on their hands and their elbows and their axillas and their necks, their eyelids. And um, you know, it just makes a huge difference to Absolutely. those kids. Absolutely, it's it's must be, yeah must feel very nice to be able to yeah. And 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 as I was telling you before, it's this this is very this is just um, fundamental plastic surgery techniques that. So th- these are things you learnt as a trainee. As a trainee, right? Yeah. So, uh, so know, burns are something you deal with. Every every trainee will spend six to twelve months in the burns unit, right? And, you know, you'll spend six to 12 months in the children's hospital doing cleft lip and palate repair. But when I went to Tanzania, they had, it was a country, population was 37 million people. They had no plastic surgeon. Not Amazing, one. yeah. So, the, you know, occasionally the dentist would have a crack at the cleft lip and palate and occasionally yeah. the general surgeons or the orthopedic surgeons would have a crack at the burns. But there was no specialised service. So... Is, we, is there now as a result of you yeah, there's, going there's a, up there? there's a number of surgeons that we've trained, yeah. um, both in uh, Dar es Salaam and also in Mwanza. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so train the local surgeons, that, train them as well so that you can leave and know that, that that area of surgical expertise is in that city and that the children and the adults can actually, actually be treated. Hmm. Um, so it was good. We trained the locals. That was that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Train their nursing staff. Train their surgeons. Yeah, it yeah. was good. It was an gr- incredible experience. Yeah. So this is all things I I never knew about you. Uh, obviously, living on the other side of Australia and not knowing it's quite fascinating. Now, um, I want to backtrack a little bit. Uh, I want to go back to if you remember. Do you remember your first surgery you ever did on a on a human? Oh, absolutely! Everyone you, remembers. You that remember day. your first one, like, and so I do stand-up comedy, obviously. And uh, when when a comedian has their first gig, um, <laughs> if you mess up a little bit, it's not too frowned upon. It's kind of expected that you stuff up here or there in your first few gigs. I'm, I'm guessing it's not the same in it's, surgery. It's a little, it, believe it or not, it's a little bit of an apprenticeship where you don't. <laughs> get to you get to do it starts out you're the guy holding the retractors and putting the dressing on that's where it starts yeah and then you you know someone's got a sebaceous cyst on the back on their back and you get to remove it and then sew sew the wound together and you have someone senior to you to teach you how to do it so you don't actually get to fly the jet straight away i i (laughs) I tell everyone you got to learn to drive the to fly the cargo plane to start with, and then yep. gradually you progress your way up. Your true first surgery is when you take the scalpel and it's in your hand and you make your first incision. Was yours a bit wonky? 
bit nervous um, or was it pretty straight? Uh, I, I, well, of course it was very straight. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, you know, usually you're taking moles or skin cancers off and stuff like right, that. Right, okay. So, um, you know, or you're putting a skin graft on an yeah. elderly person's leg. So it's not as, as cataclysmic as you would anticipate. But, you know, as the years go by, you, you're doing bigger and bigger operations. Yeah. And you've got to start somewhere, don't you? You do, you do. And it is, it is quite daunting to start with. And it's amazing how you put it out of your mind that it's actually another... You, you don't think about the fact that you're actually operating on that particular person it become once the patient goes off to sleep there's the issue that needs there's the problem how am i going to resolve it this is my approach and it's like you follow a very set set order of how how to solve it you know you does the patient know are they made aware that this surgeon is doing their first surgery no never (laughs) never because there's there's usually two or three surgeons that are scrubbed in on that particular case yeah and then while the patient's asleep, the most junior surgeon will get to do the simplest things. Right. If he has shown beforehand that he can do it. And as the, as, as the parts of the procedure become more and more complicated, the more senior guy gets to do it. So, you know, for example, you know, the, when you're doing a free flap from the abdomen to reconstruct the breast, the microsurgery part of it, sewing the vessels under the microscope, that's done by the most senior guy. That's the trickiest thing. Right. Closing the abdominal wound and putting the dressing on, that's the junior guy's job. Mm. But at the same time, the senior guy is watching the closure of the abdomen. That's equally as important. Yeah. So, you know, everyone has their role to play. And then as with the passage of time, your level of experience, as it increases, your responsibility increases. Mm. And then one day you're just all on your own and you've just got to, you've got to make a decision. And that's just you now. Execute. Yep. So, say I got myself into a bit of trouble here in Perth one time, just in the future. A <laughs> little bit of trouble, right? And someone shoots me. You yes. know, in the movies, I, I don't want to go to the hospital because I don't want to know people to know that I'm up to no good, you know? You know, in the movies, they need to go, they find just someone's house, they rush him in and say, he's been shot, get yeah. the bullet. Could you could you do that for me if I was shot, say, in the, <laughs> in the arm? Absolutely. Excellent. Absolutely. It's good to know. Well, it's good I, to have those sort of connections. Well, in 1997, we were, I arrived in um, Miami uh, in late June, and the first day I was kind of on call um, at, the, uh, at the Miami Hand Center was the 4th of July. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the first couple of patients I saw was a guy who was full of beer and just shot himself through the wrist, <laughs> accidentally, of course. And... Um, uh, he, you know, and then I thought, oh, well, this is the real world. You know, wow. I've done all my training in Australia, went over there. I'd, never, I'd seen very few gunshot wounds, for example, because mm. Australians, we don't tend to shoot each other no. that much. And the, in the United States, it was just bullets and gunshot wounds and all sorts of stuff. So it was quite an amazing training experience. Wow. What, uh, what's the, does a bullet go straight through a wrist? It would, wouldn't it? it would. Uh, yeah, yeah, it tends to at, at that mm. range because... Needless to say, it was being held by the gun in the hand that wasn't too far away. <laughs> I think he had the can of beer was in his ha- was in the hand that got shot, and the gun was in the other hand, so it wasn't too far away. Um, yeah, no, the bullet bullet will go straight through you. <laughs> if you told that, st- if you just said where did this where did this take place, and you said a man was holding a beer, he With shot a- himself in the wrist. Yeah, where did that happen? 
ninety-nine yeah. percent of people are going to say in America. the states yeah. for, on Fourth of July. What is next for you in the next? Do you think you'll just keep focusing on trying to improve breasts uh, post mastectomy? Uh, you know, trying to help women in those situations. Uh, have you got anything? Any more t- trials coming up that you need to go to America yeah, for? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a few. There's some new imp- a new update for the air expander, and I think. Um, one of the things that I that I'm working on with a couple of other um, colleagues is, I think there are so many young women who have um, unacceptable implant results. I think there will need to be a referral service for those young ladies. Right. Um, they will need somewhere to go. They're coming back from overseas, or they're getting it done by untrained GPs, for example. And, you know, they're young and they're wounded, mm. you know, and, and so therefore there'll, there'll need to be some form of service or, or um, clinic, for example, that they could go to and, you know, irrespective of the circumstances, they need to be able to be assisted. And, and I think the research related to breast implants, breast implant safety, um, you know, revision rates, all that sort of stuff is really important. Mm. And trying to teach the younger colleagues, you know, the, the the you know the expertise that they need to achieve before they just blaze away. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that that sort of thing. I think education's educate the public and educate you know the surgeons to try and be the best they can be. Well, thanks very much for joining me. I um yeah, it's just a fascinating life you've had so far. I've, I'm so intrigued. Uh, it's great to get to know more about. Uh, what you've done and you know it's great you've changed so many women's lives um, uh, for the better Um, and why yeah we wish that you know there is a cure for breast cancer and we could get on top of breast cancer uh, and the same with you know botch jobs in Thailand it's nice to know that there's still you know coming out the other side of that that there's someone and people you know that that are trying to improve everything um all the you know studies and and the the procedures once once people come through those horrible situations and uh, you you seem to be a leader in that so congratulations and thanks very much for taking it easy with me today yeah, thanks very much Dan and thanks for um, asking me all these questions it's been very interesting take no, it easy no worries at all <laughs> thanks a lot normally uh, we plug social media at the end of this but that's uh, not needed for you mate so <laughs> <laughs> thanks again cheers thanks. Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to get in contact with Tony, you can call his surgery on 08 9382 uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends. You can subscribe on iTunes at Taking It Easy with Daniel Connell. Uh, while you're on there, you might as well give it a little rating. And uh, if you have the time, give it a few stars. Uh, if you don't have iTunes, you can go to the podcast page on my website, which is www.danielconnell.com.au. You can also see all my upcoming comedy shows uh, under the gig section on the website. And while you're at it, you may as well give my Facebook page a like, which is Daniel Connell Comedy. Thanks very much. We'll catch you next time. Take it easy.